We also were going to be joined by uh, Delia Hagen, who was the other researcher and historian on the project, but unfortunately she cannot make it, so we were told to make our presentations a little bit longer, which is always very dangerous. Um, and I've done my best to do that within reason. Um, so I am uh, happy to be here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, a kind of a wide array of subjects centered in Butte in an event that takes place in 1902, but it also kind of involves some debates that take place among historians, but also events happening in Indian Territory in Oklahoma in the 1860s, so it ranges all over the place. So I hope, I hope I've managed to stitch everything together coherently for you. So, and if I run away from the microphone and people can't hear me, just shout and I'll, I'll go back to it. So given the national attention on the rise of Jim Crow and the segregation of public transportation following the Plessy v. Ferguson ruling in 1896, it's somewhat hard to imagine how the Silverboat County train depot would not have become something of a spectacle on the morning of August 4, 1902. Over 100 eager passengers crowded the platform, many of them clutching picnic lunches and fishing poles. Children could not contain their excitement about the festivities to be held later, but the journey into the mountains may very well have been the most highly anticipated moment of the day. Elsewhere in the country, these black youngsters and their families would likely have been forced to peer out from the crowded, colored-only cars, typically located uncomfortably close to the dirty and loud coal-fired engines. But they were in Montana, not Mississippi, and on Emancipation Day, 1902, Butte's black community had chartered several cars to take them up over the Continental Divide and into the mountains. When the group reached their destination, they took to a large meadow alongside Boulder Creek, now a renowned fly fishing destination, and began preparations for their annual Emancipation Day picnic. Foot races and other festivities, foot races and other festivities, uh, cap, other competitions, sorry, capped the festivities. Uh, young Roy Parsons edged out his challengers in the children's sack race, which secured him the prize of a baseball bat. 24-year-old Ida Willis took home the honors in the women's division of the 100-meter sprint, and the speedy Geo Symington won, his, won the men's race for his effort, and apparently to temper his chances at winning the next year, he received a box of cigars. <laughs> the reporter likewise noted that the ball game between the fat men and the lean was 8-1 to one in favor of the lean, as you can see up there, and Reverend Jordan Allen of Schaefer's Chapel punctuated the gathering with an address on Emancipation Day before everyone climbed aboard the excursion train once more and returned, the sm returned to the smoggy evening air of Montana's mining city. So, Emancipation Day picnics, such as this one recorded by Butte's local black newspaper, The New Age, were common annual events in many black communities throughout the western United States and Great Plains. By the 1920s and 1930s, however, the popularity of August 4th had been eclipsed by commemorations of Juneteenth, which marked the emancipation of enslaved persons in Texas after the surrender of the Confederacy. While Juneteenth eventually became the dominant summertime celebration of black freedom in America, the lesser-known Emancipation Day of August 4th carries no small amount of intrigue and, I think, exposes a complex portrayal of the black experience in the American West at the turn of the century. These auspicious gatherings can illuminate many aspects of the past, including the intimacy of racial ideologies and regional identity, in the West, black community formation at the turn of the century, and even an explicit shared black native black history that spanned centuries. But the task before us today is to consider the memories and meanings of emancipation for black Montanans and other black Westerners in the early 20th century. 
Our own collective popular memory in the West, I think, sometimes works to erode our historical knowledge in unexpected ways. If, for instance, you have already noted to yourself that Emancipation Day is not even in August, then you have just experienced what I call settler memory at work. Indeed, more than one layer of it. In fact, perhaps only a handful of historians today can speak to the original meaning of the August 4th celebrations. Their history is one we have more or less forgot, though forgetting might not be exactly the right term. Accounting for this collective amnesia requi requires us to demystify how early black Westerners themselves conceived of and remembered August 4th, and as we will see in just a moment, what exactly this merry cohort was celebrating in the mountains of western Montana and why they continued to mark the 4th may very well have been only slightly clearer to them in 1902 than as it is for us today. If you did know, however, that August 4th, 1865, commemorated the emancipation of enslaved people held by the Creek Nation in Indian Territory, or what is called dubiously, I think now, Eastern Oklahoma, uh, I would suggest that even that historical knowledge on its own is maybe not sufficient to fully prescribe meaning to the gatherings that took shape deep in the Rocky Mountains during the first decades of the 20th century. So, for the next little bit, I will attempt to peel back some of these layers of settler memory, and in doing so, uh, I hope what is revealed is not, not only a fuller and more textured history of the American West and Montana, but a story that can help us better understand the experiences of black settlers and the complicated history of U.S. colonialism that they carried with them. So, before we turn to that history, uh, we should briefly pause and note the, some of the broader implications of this project. I came to study Emancipation Day celebrations through an ongoing debate among historians and scholars about how we depict and write about black Westerners in the context of U.S. Western expansion and the colonization of indigenous lands and peoples in the era after the Civil War. How do we make sense of lives and experiences like those of the residents of Butte, which were part of emerging societies and states whose economic, cultural, and political foundations were built upon ongoing projects of indigenous dispossession? Can black migrants be colonizers in the American West even as they were subjected to the violence of internal colonialism? Or does the condition of being a racialized other remove their stories from our consideration of the history of US, and US colonization? So these questions have grown in volume in recent years as scholars continue to investigate how settler colonial states operate and persist in our world. Answers, however, have not been particularly forthcoming on this register. What has become clear, I would argue, is that to take either position uncritically relies on a flattening version of African-American history in the West. Indeed, Taya Miles, one of the historians at the forefront of, these, of this debate, has rightfully suggested that our only viable path forward requires us to acknowledge that black Westerners lived far more complicated and contradictory lives than we typically present in our historical writing. One vein in this scholarship on the Black West, which the historians Quintar Taylor and Herbert Ruffin II uh, have variously called out as the contribution school or the we were there narrative, um, these are emblematic of the flattening versions of Black Western history. But to move beyond the we were here versions of the Black West and to engage Black history meaningfully with studies of US colonialism, Ty Miles argues that we must first in invent or rediscover a way to tell their stories. So here I find myself engaged in a project of rediscovery rather than invention. Uh, that is, by taking the dynamism, complexity, and contradictions of black life in this time and place seriously, that history might yet yield some of the answers to these uncomfortable and perplexing questions. 
As it happens, I can think of no better place to begin an examination of complexity and contradiction than Butte. The account of the Butte Emancipation Day picnic is the fullest of any I have found in my scouring of Western newspapers. In many ways, it reveals the celebration to be something of a community institution, um, and you have a little bit of it up here. It's only the first part of the first column. There are actually two or three more columns in this paper, um, which you can find on chroniclingamerica.com. You can go read the whole account, which I would suggest. Um, I would venture to guess that this was a highly anticipated annual practice, despite its absence in other uh, archival sources. Yet if this was the only piece of writing that you encountered about the black community of Butte, you may be easily misled. What is not immediately evident is that this very community was in the midst of a bitter and hard-fought political campaign that saw, I'm going to put in the air quotes, party lines uh, split, uh, splitting the allegiances of the black community in the, during the elections of November in 1902. I write in great detail about this in my new book, um, but a quick uh, recap will suffice for our purposes. Uh, in the two years following Marcus Daly's death, uh, control over his Anaconda Copper Company led to an unstable political world and a widening, widening ideological gap between the remaining Copper Kings, William Clark and Augustus Heinze. What came to be known as the Battle for Butte hopelessly scattered and confused any semblance of party lines or affiliations among the city's voters. This confusion can really not be overstated. Both men were nominally Democrats on the national level, which split Butte's predominantly labor-oriented electorate. Republicans in the state also reluctantly split allegiances between the two men as true Republicans faded into banality uh, to further muddy the waters in order to offer different candidates for offices than those backed by Clark. Augustus Heinze began running men as Republicans after 1901, though he himself remained or rather returned officially to being a member of the Democratic Party. Tellingly, no, local newspapers here in Butte and around the state generally ceased identifying candidates by party altogether, and instead they advocated for either the Clark ticket or the Heinze ticket, despite, of course, neither man actually running for any office. Sensing a moment of uh, unique political potential, a number of black men and women from the city conspired together in what they called a, quote, political plot to assist, assert the power of the black ballot through the creation of a newspaper. Um, Clicker? Okay, I, just, I wasn't sure. Didn't want to touch something. I have anything to regard. Uh, this was one of those men, uh, John Duncan. Who we'll talk about in a second. Uh, among them were John Duncan. He was a local barber and eventually uh, a podiatrist here in Butte. Um, and Chris Dorsey, who was the personal valet to none other than Augustus Heinze. Nationally, black voters were still seen as unsaleably Republican voters, uh, but as we might well imagine, the party of Lincoln was, not, was all but impossible to discern in the contest entirely centered, centered on local union issues and judicial appointments, and not really at all anything related to the national issue of race politics in the early 20th century. Thus, the New Age, the newspaper they founded, began in the spring of that year uh, as a community paper devoted to voicing the issues that mattered to the African Americans of the city. And to consolidate that black vote for whatever candidate, Republican or Democrat, was attentive to their concerns. It actually proved more difficult than they had imagined. Not even the two main editors of the paper managed to agree. Dorsey eventually stumped for his employer, Heinze, while Duncan and Smith, who was another editor uh, listed early on in the paper, um, began endorsing Democratic candidates by September. Um, and I will point out, that's actually quite late in 
the, the run of the paper. So despite the fact that the paper does eventually come to advocate for Democratic candidates, it had made it months and months and months without taking a side, which I will talk about in a little bit, I think is actually quite significant. Um, the New Age also reveals that the black residents of Butte fiercely debated and disagreed even on some of those ongoing issues facing black social politics on the national stage. Arguments concerning whether higher education and political agitation was the most prudent way to, quote, uplift the race, or if industrial education and the accumulation of property and capital should be emphasized over, civic, over uh, agitating for civic liberties, filled the minutes of literary clubs and other social organizations. But, uh, this wider context, I think, merely speaks to an unexpected complexity in the lives of, blacks, of black residents of Buttes. It is not entirely surprising, therefore, that if we assume that it is this community gathering in the mountains above the city in August 4th, 1902, uh, if we assume that this community was an uncomplicated, was engaging in an uncomplicated and simple celebration of black freedom, uh, then we would again be wrong. How the black community of Butte came to board that train uh, has its own complicated and contradictory history. It begins with the emancipation of enslaved people from bondage on August 4th, 1865, months after Juneteenth, uh, the, the event that was eventually marked by Juneteenth, I would point out. Um, Abraham Lincoln had been dead for almost five months. The Emancipation Proclamation took, event, took effect two years before, on January 1st, 1863, which most African Americans across the country celebrated then as Emancipation Day. Yet thousands of enslaved African Americans living in Indian territory still eagerly awaited the news of their freedom. On August 4, 1865, the Loyal Creek Council formally declared that African Creeks would be considered full citizens of the Creek Nation, attesting to the full civic and tribal inclusion uh, and incorporation of the freedmen, the day became a lasting marker of inclusion and equality. African American communities in Indian Territory celebrated annually with picnics, dances, and other summertime activities. Much has been written on black Indian slavery and emancipation, uh, but, this, but these celebrations that took place both within Indian Territory and throughout the country over the next four to five decades have passed as remarkably insignificant to historians. In some commemorative gatherings, Though we find an opportunity to think about the complexity of freedom in settler society, as well as how and why some histories become inoperative, while others become enshrined in our collective memory. So we should rightly ask then, how did such memories become inoperative? From 1865 to 1887, uh, August 4 celebrations in the record appear to be more or less straightforward in their meaning. Over 6,000 persons of African descent lived within the boundaries of the Seminole, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Creek nations after, this, after the Civil War. These black Indians were soon joined by thousands of new black settlers who likely also began commemorating August 4th. Known to history as the Exodusters, tens of thousands of southern, black, southern African Americans migrated to the eastern and central Great Plains in Indian Territory after Greater Reconstruction came crashing down in 1877. These newcomers established towns and neighborhoods across the region, frequently coming in contact, marrying, and building communities with black Indians and their children. While most African Creeks culturally identified as Indian, many of the new black settlers decidedly could not. In the midst of these quickly shifting social conditions, August 4 celebrations continued during the late 1870s and 1880s, despite many of their new participants having far fewer connections to its original meaning. 
Moreover, they would have had a very different conceptualization of what their own place in the history of emancipation was. Therefore, uh, the meaning of August 4th, I think we can safely assume, slowly began to change. Much like how Juneteenth is now celebrated across the country and not just in Texas, many black Americans elsewhere embraced the holiday. It may have reminded themselves and members of the white community that emancipation should mean total civic in inclusion. Especially by the early 1880s, African Creek emancipation stood in stark contrast to the conditions unfolding in the South. Scholars have argued that Creeks were among the most progressive in their treatment and incorporation of their former slaves. Voting schools uh, and tribal leadership, as well as other social services, were open to black Indians to a greater degree than even in any of the other five nations. Settler colonial logics, however, would strain the meaning of this celebration of social inclusion. As black migration to Indian territory increased, the influx of non-Indian settlers inflamed tensions between the five nations and black Indians. While disagreements over lands and tribal participation may persisted in the 1880s, the mostly peaceful relations symbolically came to a head in 1887 when Congress passed the infamous Dawes Allotment Act. Uh, debates about the future allotment procedures, um, future because the Curtis Act um, actually deferred allotment in Indian territory until the early 20th century. Um, uh, debates about the future allotment procedures in the Creek Nation now also included those Creek freedmen and freedwomen who had been emancipated more than 20 years earlier. Many Creeks, however, not only questioned if all freedmen listed on those infamous Dawes rolls were truly Creek, but some even opposed any black Indians receiving allotments regardless of their standing with the tribe. This, was, this moment was exceedingly complicated and by no, mean, by no means did all Creeks hold the same views. What was clear, however, was that the colonial pressures intensified this unresolved status of African Americans who made their home on Indian lands. From here, it is perhaps not entirely surprising then that most historians have suggested that August 4th celebrations slowly faded from popular black culture before the end of the century, and that, was and that it was already confined only to those small communities which retained, retained deep ties to their African Creek heritage. So how then do we make sense of the celebrations that continued to be held on August 4th and continue to be referred to as Emancipation Days uh, for decades after this original meaning appears to have faded? Newspaper sources from across the American West um, reveal, I think, a surprising range of possibilities. Next slide, please. Further east, Joseph Bass wrote in the Montana Plain Dealer, uh, this season is the beginning of the Emancipation Day celebrations anywhere from August 1st to August 10th. Indeed, celebrations back east, as he said, were more often held on August 9th or more commonly on August 1st. That latter date uh, marked the day uh, in the 1834 when Britain began its uh, gradual abolition of slavery in the West Indies. White and black papers alike noted with curiosity that picnics and parades in their cities were not, as one might assume, at all connected to the Emancipation Proclamation. This widespread ambiguity seems to have been a point of annoyance for some. Uh, quote, in fact, Joseph Bass stated, the no day in August has any significance to the abolition of American slavery, but applies only to the gradual emancipation of slaves in the West Indies. The only days that are really emancipation days for the American Negro are September 22nd and January 1st, end quote. So penned in 1910 by a black newspaper editor who had cut his teeth in Topeka in Kansas City, Bass nonetheless seemed unaware of African Creek emancipation. 
Notwithstanding, his paper in Helena, Montana, continued to run advertisements for August 4th celebrations over the next several years. Here we can observe an interesting trend in many of these early black papers. Back east, as back noted, Emancipation Day was observed on the, on the first, but on the Great Plains and in the west, Emancipation Day was nearly always celebrated on the fourth. A paper in King County, Washington, mused on this, quote, oddity before dismissing the observance of the fourth simply as the usual custom. Perhaps it was more than a simple oddity or some other randomness. Butte only had a single black newspaper during the summer of 1902, which contains the most detailed account of an August 4th celebration that I have found thus far. The black paper in Helena in 1907, 1908, 1910, and again in 1911 included ads and accounts for their community's upcoming August 4th celebrations. In Denver, August 4th excursion trains left from the Five Points train station into the mountains every year from at least 1910 until 1918, demonstrating both the material investment in the holiday as well as that neighborhood's status and pride as the nation's first black trolley car suburb. The Denver Star and the Colorado Statesman, likewise, reported on black communities in other Rocky Mountain towns holding their own picnics on the 4th. Each and every year, from Albuquerque to Tacoma, the black press advised their readers to mine their upcoming calendars and keep off the 4th. So, this I'll pause before I kind of conclude here. Um, we don't actually have any photos, uh, understandably, of the events in Butte, but as I've been kind of scouring archives recently for dissertation work, I have come across some, I think, very emblematic um, uh, images that show similar types of picnicking gatherings. Um, the man on the left, Charles Roan, is from Laramie, Wyoming, and lived in uh, Cheyenne. His granddaughter eventually became the first black woman to serve in Wyoming's state legislature. And I think he is probably the happiest person I have ever encountered in a photo from the, 19th, from the early uh, 20th century. Um, so I like to include him here. And then this is also an interesting and somewhat bizarre capture of a um, Juneteenth picnic um, in the mountains outside of Denver in what eventually becomes Lincoln Hills, which was a kind of all-black-owned uh, resort community that persisted for uh, several decades from the 1920s into the 1950s. Um, and I still cannot figure out if the man in the background is falling or you know, showing off his, uh, his ability to compete in the long jump. Um, either way, I, I, I did like to include these because I think that and I have written other points, that it's actually kind of hard to imagine what might have been happening, kind of the events of the day in 1902 in Butte. Um, if you were someone living in Basin, this would have been something, you know, quite substantial. Um, and I think it's important to allow ourselves to kind of adjust to a, a, a different historical moment and imagine kind of what these lived experiences would have been and felt like. So. So I'm going to conclude here really quickly, I hope. Um, pulling on this thread, I think, exposes several different layers of settler memory at work. It first reminds us that Montana and Butte were home to a vibrant black community at the turn of the century. And I will apologize, I had really hoped that Delia would have shown how vibrant and incredible it was before I had uh, been able to present. So, but it also points us to questions that we should investigate about how, how memory and commemoration work to make certain histories disappear. Less than 50 years after emancipation, its significance, the August 4th celebration, was already unclear in the minds of those who commemorated an event on the same day and with the same name. We can see where and when, perhaps, the origins of August 4th fell away, but why? 
a common black Indian heritage might be subjected to this selective forgetting is less clear, I think. Was it merely the power of tradition that kept the fourth alive for many more years in spite of its limited cultural appeal? If so, then why not elsewhere in the country? And perhaps most importantly, was this partial commemoration doing some kind of work for black Westerners who were struggling to make their home in the West and on recently dispossessed Indian lands? I argue that these types of histories suggest the framework of thinking and writing about black settlers in the West uh, should not really be evacuated just yet. Grappling with these questions requires our analysis to, to attend not only to the experiences of blackness within settler, settler colonialism, but it also requires us to ask how black settlers, uh, how the black settler experience itself may have taken shape at different moments as black newcomers confronted their own complicated past and present on the ancestral homelands of indigenous peoples in the West. It can help us articulate how settler logics shape collective remembrances. Uh, by the 20th century, pervasive ideologies of native, of native elimination redirected these collective memories of black settlers away from a shared Indian heritage towards other emancipatory narratives. In Butte, Montana, their August 4th picnic in 1902 was more than just a vaguely conceived connection to the past or an opportunity to enjoy the summer weather, though it was those things also. It was a series of performances of home and belonging. Black celebrants in, these, in the early 20th century could look to the West as a space where they might one day realize the hope of earlier generations who carried their sovereignty with them. Beneath the steep, steep forested slopes and canyon walls of the Boulder River Valley, Butte's black residents found the space to stretch their legs in foot races and baseball games and to breathe the fresh air as they fished and prepared other food. Their use of public outdoor spaces, I think, also illustrates the black community's participation in an emerging wilderness ethic that had become foundational to the ideology of the Progressive Era's conservation movement. Beyond this, the connection to the natural world, beyond this connection to the natural world, they also found the space to stretch their stoles, as W.B. Du Bois might have put it, as they sang hymns and prayed before Reverend Allen of Schaefer's Chapel gave a short address on the significance of their conspicuous gathering. Perhaps Reverend Allen knew the origins of the holiday. Like many African Methodist Episcopal ministers of his day, he had traveled and worked extensively throughout the American West and the Great Plains, meeting all kinds of people and hearing their stories. But the fact that the paper did not record any of his words might suggest to us that the shared black Indian heritage of August 4th remained buried that day. The tensions on display in this moment are certainly complex and riddled with differences that set it apart from the standard narratives of either novel black contribution or the colonial narrative of black banality Western history. And I have no doubt that a renewed and generative debate about the language we use when we write about this history will produce a greater explanatory power for understanding our settler colonial present. To seek out that complexity in the past, however, is to find the black settlers confronted and challenged certain expectat expectations as they made their own claims to home and belonging. Like those claims made on August 4th, 1902 in the mountains of Montana, they had a history, and that history was not uncomplicated. Thank you.